So a few weeks ago, Mark preached on authentic leadership. And uh, he talked about how authentic leadership has some qualifications. Um, it requires godly character. It requires vulnerability. Um, it requires being humble and honest uh, with ourselves and with others about our strengths and our weaknesses. Um, and he also shared some testifications about Jesus' character and qualifications. That's right, I said testifications. Harper, I got your back. We're going to make this thing stick, bro. New Oxford, here we come. And if not, you know, whatevs. But uh, he shared some testimony from Matthew 16 about Jesus' character and his qualifications. And authentic leadership is, is important to God. Uh, last week, we had Marlon and Charlotte Bender with us. And uh, Charlotte made a statement about leadership as well. And I just kind of want to circle back on that. So what makes us a leader? Clearly, the guy with the dope hat is the leader, right? It's totally the hat. But, but seriously, if you want to know if you're a leader, you just have to look behind you. If there are people following you, you're a leader, right? There's always someone watching you, following your lead. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a good leader. You know, your leadership could look like this kind of running people into the muck, right? And we don't want that. But that the reality, guys, is every single one of us is a leader. There's always someone watching us, following us, following our lead. And that's why it's important that we lead well. Leadership is uh, important to God, and it's important to his church. And so while last week Mark talked, or the week before last, Mark talked about authentic leadership, today I want to look at some of the qualifications for leaders in the church. So God has specific qualifications for leaders in his church. Leaders aren't to be just chosen at random. It's not like picking for kickball, you know. Um, leaders aren't to be chosen just because they volunteer or they serve. Leaders aren't to be chosen because they aspire to be a leader or even because they're natural leaders, and some people are. Instead, leaders in the church should be identified first and foremost on how they match up with the qualifications that are provided for us in Scripture. And the qualifications for leadership have nothing to do with giftedness, with talents. God doesn't tell us, go out and find the most gifted men. I mean, look at who he chose as his initial 12 disciples. Fishermen, tax collectors, a zealot and a thief. How would those skills help these men attend to the task that God had before them. He doesn't need gifted men. And he doesn't need gifted men because God can easily place gifts within men because gifts are given by the Holy Spirit as he wills. You know, as um, Cheryl mentioned earlier, what, what you need to be a godly leader is to have God's heart. You need godly character. And you need to be willing. You need to be willing to pick up your cross and follow him. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Going to seminary doesn't make one qualified for spiritual leadership either. It may prepare you, you know, in biblical knowledge, but it doesn't necessarily qualify you to be a leader. Because it's not just about what you know. 
being a skilled speaker doesn't make you qualified for spiritual leadership. Thank goodness. (laughs) Natural or spiritual gifts in themselves don't qualify us uh, for spiritual leadership. What someone gives in money or in volunteer time doesn't qualify them for spiritual leadership. What qualifies a person for spiritual leadership is one thing and one thing only, and that's godly character. And godly character that's established according to the clear criteria laid out for us in 1 Timothy 3. So I want to read from there now. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8. It says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But guys, this, this isn't a rigid list. It's not like a checklist of things that demand perfection in all areas. It's, it's really just speaking of character. When we're looking at church leaders, we should look at this, this list and we should ask, does this leader in question desire all these things with their whole heart? Does that desire show itself in their life? Can you see the fruit of it in their life? And are there others available to better fulfill the requirements of the list? Now's a good time for me to state the obvious. These qualifications for elders and deacons aren't just valuable and and necessary for leaders within the church, but they're beneficial to every Christian, every follower of Christ, not only those that aspire to leadership within the church. That's why um, several times a year, although with all the things that have been going on, it's been a bit disruptive, we offer leadership training and we invite everyone, the whole church. It's not... You know, hey, we think you'd be a good leader. It's, hey, we're all leaders. We're all leaders everywhere we go, in our places of work, in our families. And so we offer that training because it helps you to become a better Christian leader. And these qualifications are clear indication of godly character and spiritual maturity. Every one of us is leading someone. And godly character and spiritual maturity help us to lead them well in all areas of our lives. So let's carry on in 1 Timothy uh, 3, 8 through 13. It says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
In a few moments, we'll turn to Acts 6, and we'll see an example of the appointment of deacons in the New Testament church. We'll read that the apostles saw the need for the church, saw a need in the church, and that that need went beyond merely the distribution of the daily assistance to the widows. The need was for godly men to bring peace and wisdom and unity to a situation that could have very easily gone sideways and resulted in a split in the church. Guys, godly leadership should always bring peace and unity. It's important. Likewise, deacons must. The qualifications for the deacon are much the same of those for bishops, elders, overseers, and pastors. We shouldn't see one officer function as more prestigious than the other, but one office definitely carries more spiritual responsibility than the other. Elders are required to carry government, to lead, to guide, to rule over the spiritual welfare of the church, including the teaching of doctrine. We like to use the D's, doctrine, discipline, and direction. Those are eldership functions. Deacons aren't required to do those things. And each of these functions is not a matter of spiritual status, but a matter of calling. It's just different functions. Not better, but different, as Mark would say. So I pointed out these verses in 1 Timothy 3 uh, in preparation for our next portion of Scripture, where we meet the first deacons in the New Testament church. So let's turn to Acts 6, 1 through 7. We'll start with uh, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. In that first verse, it says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, we have to remember that we're still dealing with the initial advance of the gospel among the Jews in Jerusalem, as six or eight years may have passed since the beginning of the church on Pentecost. It's been suggested by biblical scholars that as many as 20,000 Christians may have been in and around the city of Jerusalem at that time. Things were going very, very well for the church. But as the enemy does, Satan attacked the church with grumbling and accusation because he knows that a disunified church is an ineffective church, is a stale church, is a dying church. A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So from this we can see that the early church took care of its widows by providing meals for them from a common fund. Now we have no way to know how many widows there were in a church of 20,000 or so people, but there must have been a fair number. And a church racked by internal strife grinds to a screeching halt in its effectiveness, both then and now. Satan's plan hasn't changed. He still wants to try to tear down God's church, no different then than now. And he'll find any way he can to try to do that. But in this case, it it was a complaint that arose from the Hellenistic Jews who claimed that their widows were being neglected. Not just widows, but their widows it seems that they considered this slight to be deliberate. So the native Hebrews were the target of the complaint. These were Jews born and raised in Israel, for the most part, 
They diligently spoke and preserved their native Hebrew language. They did not mix with outsiders and stubbornly refused to allow other cultures to encroach on their traditions. The Hellenistic Jews, or Grecian Jews, as some translations uh, say it, were Jewish people who lived abroad. They spoke Greek and other languages, adopted some of their local cultural practices of the regions where they lived, and uh, depended upon a network of local synagogues for their worship. And as you might imagine, a rivalry developed. Guys, coming to Christ doesn't automatically erase our past prejudices. It'd be wonderful if it did. But the reality is, if they're there, we have to deal with them. We have to do battle with our sinful nature every day and constantly surrender to Jesus and adopt the new nature, the the new self that that Christ creates within us when we say yes to him. We have to constantly um, remind ourselves of that and deal with those, those issues from prior. Now, Jesus gives us the ability to love those who are different from us, but we must cooperate and lay aside the old self and put on the new self. Unity with those who differ from us isn't automatic. It's not something that just happens. We have to work at it sometimes. It requires effort and grace and patience. So at this point, we should stop and realize that the potential for a split was very, very real and present within the growing body of Christians in Jerusalem. This church that had been so successful very well could have gone from being the first church of Christ to the first church of Christ Hebrew and the first church of Christ Hellenist. Sadly, friends, churches today have split over far less than what was being dealt with in this time. It's unfortunate and it's sad. And that might be exactly what have happened here if not for God's solution. Because God's really smart and his plans are always better than ours. So he had a plan to combat disunity and propel the church into unprecedented growth. And that solution was the appointment of the first deacons in the church. And that solution came just in time. Let's take a look at Acts 6.2. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, at first reading of this, at first glance of this, we might get the mistaken idea that the twelve were saying that they just didn't want to serve tables. But if you look at that phrase, it's not right. It indicates more than just a whim or a matter of personal preference. The meaning that was the preaching of the gospel was primarily carried out through the apostles and that it wasn't God's best use of their time that they get sidetracked while they took care of serving tables. But that need had to be met. Thus the first deacons of the church were appointed. Acts 6, 3-7 Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Paramenes, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. 
And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The Greek word deacon is diakonos, and it simply means one who serves. Uh, that same word diakonos is also used to describe what became a formal office in the church, which included um, the well-defined qualifications and responsibilities that we read in 1 Timothy 3. These seven men selected were to be full of the Spirit, as Luke puts it. I take that to mean that they were men who had much evidence of the Spirit's influence in their lives, that the fruit of the Spirit was evident in these men's lives. These seven men were uh, just men that showed great evidence of fruit. Yes, in a very short time, they would receive miraculous gifts from the Holy Spirit when the apostles laid hands on them. And it's uh, evidenced later in the remaining verses of this chapter in Acts and the next two chapters as we see Philip and Stephen doing miracles. Here, though, before the laying on of apostles' hands, they were simply men who were wise, well-respected, and full of the Spirit's influence. Notice also that those chosen were to be men of good reputation. This is the same qualification that Paul uh, prescribed for elders in 1 Timothy 3.7. One more thing to note from this verse is these men were to be put in charge of the task at hand. Now that could imply that they were to just go do the work themselves, but that's really not uh, practical. If we take a look at this church, we're saying around 20,000 people. And let's just say 5% of them were widows. That's a thousand mouths to feed multiple times a day. Doesn't seem likely that seven men could accomplish those tasks. That's a lot of work for only seven people, even really awesome people to take care of. Most likely it implies that these deacons were to influence and affect and plan and implement things that were able to get the the task done that they were to involve others um, in accomplishing it. So the seven were appointed in Acts 6 so that the apostles could continue to vote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In this, we see an important function of the modern deacon in the Lord's church. He's to take care of some of the serving tasks so that those who preach can fully devote themselves to the ministry of the word. Let's look at Acts 6.5. In the beginning of that verse, it says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Byron, if you could come up. Isn't it great when that happens? When we all join together in the approval of a certain direction? It pleased the whole gathering. It solved the problem. It squelched the complaint and it brought unity. That's what godly leadership does. Reminded of Psalm 133.1. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Guys, unity is so important to God. And so is leadership. Unity was God's solution to disunity. So those seven spiritual men were chosen. Seven men who may have saved the church as we know it. I say that because it doesn't require much imagination to see that this situation could have gone way differently. 
that rivalry and prejudice could have spread, division could have consumed the church. Like I said before, the enemy's plans don't change. He's pretty predictable. He's sly, you know, but also predictable. He's going to do everything that he can to tear down the church. So we always have to be on guard for that. Always. And as leaders within the church, and even as just as Christians, we have to fight for our unity. That should always be our goal. People could have chosen sides, started gossiping, accusing, and counter-accusing. The whole thing could have erupted into a fight, leaving the church as a mere memory of something great that failed in just under a decade. Satan would have loved that. But obviously, that wasn't God's plan. And in his wisdom and provision, it didn't happen. Paul would later write in Ephesians 4.16 about the body of Christ, the church, that it was held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. Friends, we all have a part to play in the body of Christ. They're all important. We all bind each other together. Godly leadership is so important. And I just, I think it's awesome that that we're having this young leader's time to to build up the next generation of leaders, to equip and encourage. Because it's needed. It's desperately needed. We see here in Acts 6 that when a problem arose, the leaders quickly assessed it and proposed a solution. And in that solution, spiritual men stepped up and put their shoulders to work. They took care of the problems that that were needing solved. And the brothers and sisters that made up the church cooperated and worked together. Potential crisis was averted and the church continued to thrive and grow as we see it today. This chapter began with Luke's words. Now at this time, the disciples were increasing in number. And now he says the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. So rather than a potential squabble splitting the church, the wise solution proposed actually caused their influence to to increase and increase greatly. So what does this portion of scripture have to do with you and I? Let me suggest a, a few things here. It lets us see how the early church functioned in the face of difficulties that could have destroyed it. Problems weren't just swept under the rug and ignored. They were recognized, analyzed, and addressed with wise solutions. As problems are never solved by sticking them under a rug, by letting them hide in darkness. They never are. We've got to drag them into the light and deal with them. And in that same way, we have to address our problems that we may face as a church today. They have to be properly addressed because that same enemy, that same devil, that same deceiver would do everything he can to destroy our church. So we have to be ever vigilant, always on watch for what he's, what he's trying to do. We don't have to fear. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. We don't have to fear. But we do have to be aware. It also reminds us of how our church needs to be organized according to the pattern found in the New Testament. This pattern of leadership structure was put in place by God to, to administer his church. 
And it included deacons that we've seen here, overseers and elders, prophets, evangelists, teachers. All of those things are needed. We live by that pattern revealed in the New Testament. And why do we do it? Because it works. Because it's not something we put together. It's something that God put in place. And he's way smarter than we are. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel when it comes to church leadership. We just have to follow the pattern laid before us by God. And it reminds us that the church needs spiritually qualified men and women to serve in these various offices. Every one of us should diligently pursue the kind of spiritual life that might one day qualify us to serve as a deacon or an elder or an evangelist or an apostle. So that even if we don't ever find ourselves um, serving in that capacity, we know enough about those functions that we can wisely support the men and women that God puts in those places. And this all certainly calls to attention the character with which we lead in our marriages, our family life, for the, the need for a growing knowledge of God's word and an increasing transformation to the image of Christ. Guys, that's where godly character comes from. It's just spending time with our Jesus. The more time we spend with him, the more we get to know him, the more we start to look like him and sound like him and act like him. The church will never rise higher than the capacity of her leadership. And we need passionate godly leaders of godly character now more than ever. Godly leadership is so important in our church and in our lives in general as believers. We all want to see God's church grow and thrive and the enemy wants to see it destroyed. We have to fight for our unity. And godly leadership always fights for unity and brings peace. Guys, we have to remember we're all leading someone. Just look behind you. Someone's following you. You don't even have to have a really cool hat. So let's all aspire to godly character. Character that comes from spending time with Jesus. Let's lead well and support those who lead us. What makes a leader? That someone's following. But what qualifies us and makes us a good godly leader? Godly character. And the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Friends, character qualifies us. Nothing that we bring to the table, skill set wise or anything else, just having the heart of our Father and a willingness to say yes to Him.